Romans chapter 5. Last week we began a little series on a phrase that's used in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. I like to look for patterns in the Word of God because I believe this Bible is inspired. And so if there's a pattern, it's not an accident. Nothing is an accident in the Word of God. Uh, but God is trying to get our attention, and He's trying to teach us something through the presence of that pattern. And in Romans chapter 5, on five separate occasions, God uses the phrase, much more, as He speaks about the truth of grace. And so we began to deal with the much mores of the grace of God. You know, we talked about it last week, and I'm not going to go through and preach it all over again. If you want to hear, I'm sorry, you can get you a CD, but... Grace is an abundant thing. If it were not abundant, then it couldn't be offered. If God didn't have enough, He couldn't give you and me some. But the Bible speaks of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how deep in that bag that you plunge your hand. It doesn't matter how big of a bucket that you pull up. You have not diminished the grace of God. Every time that we come to 1 John 1, 9 and we need forgiveness because we've failed and we've sinned and we do sin, every one of us. Uh, the Bible says these things that I've written unto you that you sin not, John said in 1 John 2, 1. But then he went on to say this, and if any man sin, that tells you something. It's not the will of God for us to sin, but we don't always do the will of God. And if you live in this world, you're going to sin. So if any man sin, we have an advocate with, uh, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He's the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Every time we come to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's not just the first ten times or the first hundred times or the first thousand or first hundred thousand but every time that we come to Him, we've not diminished His grace. His grace is abundant. His grace is active in our lives. Uh, listen, I mean, it's not just, if it wasn't abundant, it, it couldn't be offered. But if it wasn't active, it'd do no good to offer it. It wouldn't be offered. If grace couldn't do something for you, then God wouldn't point you to His grace. The Bible says that it's by grace that we're saved. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done but it's through His own grace that He has saved us. Now, you know why God points you to that? Because grace is sufficient. Grace works. Uh, grace can do for you things that the law couldn't do for you. When we speak about the law of God, let me exhort for a moment. i got plenty to preach, and we'll see what the Lord does with that, but I want to exhort you for a moment. When we speak of the law, we're speaking of a man's attempts to appease self or God or conscience through his own good works. Now, you say, I thought we was talking about the Old Testament law, and that's true. When we speak about the law proper, we're speaking about the 600 and some odd commandments of the Old Testament. But the book of Romans makes it clear to us that for the Gentile that doesn't know anything of the law, that even his conscience is a law unto himself. So when we speak of the law, we are by extension speaking about a man's attempts to please God through his own good works. But you know that our conscience tells us the same thing that the law tells us, that we're guilty, 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 guilty. Who among us would there be that has a perfectly spotless conscience? Oh, you may get to sleep at night, but there's not a one of us who couldn't look back over our life and admit that we've sinned and we've done wrong. Every one of us are sinners before a holy God. But let me tell you something. The law in your conscience, it could condemn you, but grace has the ability to set you free. Grace can justify a man. Grace can quicken a man. Grace can make a man accepted in the Beloved and into the presence of God. That's what grace can do. Law couldn't do that for you. Law could condemn you. But, oh, my grace, it could set you free. Grace is an active thing in our lives. And I think I had a third one, but I don't know. <laughs> in Romans chapter 5, we see another much more. Last week, we talked about the much more of the sacrifice of grace. And grace gave up much more than anything else has. And grace was a greater sacrifice than we could have ever made. But in the next few verses, Paul moves on to another thought. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 11. The Word of God says this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, 
And hope maketh not a shame. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. In verse 10 and 11, he gives us another much more. He says this, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time You've given us. I pray that You would take this sword, Lord, and that You would pierce, that You'd cut, that You'd shave away, that You'd work, that You'd slay the old man. And God, that You'd gain victory in our hearts and lives today. Lord, that in all things that take place, that You would gain glory. Father, You have a will. Help us to surrender that it may be exercised in our midst this morning. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if last week we spoke of the much more of the sacrifice of grace, and Paul spoke about how that grace went to such great lengths that as God expressed His grace towards us, His love towards us, He commended it not when we were friends, not when we were family, not when we were acquaintances, not when we were partners, but God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were sinners and enemies, God sent Christ to die on Calvary. Now, that's a sacrifice. Ain't I right? That, come on, help me now. That's a sacrifice now. If that spoke about the sacrifice of grace. And I believe in the next few verses, Paul points us towards the much more of the security of grace. Let me tell you something. There's lots of folks this morning that think that they can get to heaven through their own good works. But that's, number one, no way to get to heaven. And then, number two, even if you could get to heaven that way, that wouldn't be any way you'd want to try to get to heaven. You see, grace was not the audible that God called when man failed. Grace was the supreme plan of the redemption of humanity from day one. It's not that God looked down on the broken scene of a a forbidden fruit lying upon the ground. It's not that He looked down upon the broken scene of man spiraled into depravity and said, "Uh uh-oh, what am I going to do now? I've got to figure something out. I created man in innocence and he's fallen into sin. I've got to figure something out. No, my friend, from before the foundations of the world were laid, there was a lamb slain for your sins and mine. And that was the plan of God from day one. The church is not God's audible for Calvary, and grace is not God's audible for the law, and justification is not God's audible for man's fall from innocency. No, God has been working these matters and these truths out from the beginning of time. Yea, before time ever began, before a clock ever ticked one second, God had already purposed in the eternal mind and heart to send His Son to die for you and me. Why is that? Could it be because that's the most efficient and sufficient and secure way for a man to be redeemed. Paul has already spoken about us being saved from wrath, but he moves a step further, and he moves into the present condition of the believer in verses 10 and 11. And he's going to give us three reasons. Now, I want to tell you this morning. I believe in the eternal security of a born-again believer. I believe that once a man's saved, he will always be saved. I believe that he cannot lose his salvation. I believe he cannot forfeit his salvation. For his salvation was never dependent upon his righteousness, but it was dependent upon the grace of God. It was a gift that was given, and God isn't going to take it back, and we can't give it back. It's been exercised in our life. If you've placed your faith in Christ, I want to give you a few reasons why I believe you're secure in the grace of God this morning. Now, I could give you a hundred, but Paul gives us three basic reasons in this passage that we can know for sure that we're saved and that we cannot lose our salvation. Look with me at verse number 10. Paul says this, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled, Reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Let me say the first thing Paul talks about is he talks about something that's already happened. 
he speaks about the reconciliation of the sinner unto God. Now, as we speak of reconciliation in the Word of God, there's two ways we have to understand it. There's reconcile in the sense of uh, harmonizing or setting aright two individual things. And then there's reconciliation in the sense of joining together two entities that once were together and have been alienated and estranged. Can I give you an example of that? You may be trying to figure something out, a math problem. I hate math. Anybody testify with me? I hate math. Can I tell you a secret, young people? You're never going to need algebra. Amen? Listen, everybody else may lie to you, but I won't lie to you. You'll never use, I mean, you know, beyond basic algebra, if that discourages you parents, I'm sorry, but I'm bound to tell the truth. You're never going to use algebra. I hate math. I was always terrible at math. Math is the reconciliation of a question and an answer. You have a question proposed, and then you have an answer for the solution. And how many of you, your teacher told you this when you was in school? It wasn't enough to have the right answer. You had to show your work. She wanted you to show how you reconciled that question and that answer. We might say that's the reconciliation of two things in the sense of harmonizing them one with another. But then there may be someone in your life that you've loved dearly. I don't know if your family's like my family, but I guess every family has drama. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, if everybody was like me, we'd be all right. Amen. But everybody's not like me. And sometimes, I know you wouldn't believe this, but sometimes people disagree with me. I've still not figured it out. 28 years I've walked this earth, but evidently people do it. And uh, you may have had someone in your life that you loved dearly, and all of a sudden a wedge came up between you, and you were separated in some way. And there was a period of time where maybe that relationship cooled. Maybe you didn't see him very often. Maybe there was something between you. But there came a blessed day when in some way that was able to be buried and put away, and you were reconciled unto one another. And now that relationship is restored. Let me say that as we speak of the reconciliation of God, there is a thought concerning being reconciled to God. And there is a thought of being reconciled unto God. When Christ died upon the cross of Calvary, the Bible says He was reconciling the world to God. In other words, you and I, we stood at ought with a holy God. But when He died on the cross of Calvary, everything that sat at ought between us and God was justified. The judgment of God was satisfied. The the payment was made. And we were reconciled to God. Now there's nothing standing between us. But now listen, that's not enough to get a man to heaven. He can't just be reconciled to God. He's got to be reconciled unto God. Uh, That which prevents a man, you may have heard people say this before, that a person doesn't die and go to hell because of any particular sin. They die and go to hell because they reject Christ. You know why we say that is because you don't have to die and go to hell because of your sin, because Christ already died for sin on Calvary. If you die and go to hell, it's not because God can't save you. It's not because you're a drunkard or a drug addict or a sodomite or a liar or an adulterer. Those things have been paid for on Calvary. The reason if you die and go to hell that you will die and go to hell is because you reject the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you may have been reconciled to God, but you've not been reconciled unto God. When a person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, what did Christ say in John chapter 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Paul begins to lay out a few arguments, and he begins with the reconciliation that's taken place. Can I say this? Number one, one reason why you can't lose your salvation is because our past has been settled through the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives a few different thoughts, I believe, rolled up into this. But can I say this, number one, that part of our past being settled is that there is a debt that we owed, but that debt has been paid. You see, uh, the Bible pictures you and I as being, not just pictures, it states explicitly, that you and I, we are the creatures, we are the creation of God. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Everybody is, uh, is part of God's creation, but not everybody is God's children. Amen? Everybody may be God's creature, but not everybody is God's child. But inasmuch as God, as a benevolent creator, gave you life, and He did give you life, the reason that you awoke in life one day is because God allowed it. He gave you breath to breathe. He gave you legs to walk. He gave you arms to move. He gave you a mind to live and to think and to breathe and move and have your being. God has provided all these things for you. Uh, He has entrusted, He has given a stewardship of these things to you that you might then turn from your sinful way and look unto Him for salvation. But do you know what mankind 
swine did with all that. He took every bit of it like pearls before swine. He cast it away. He ran like a rebel and a reprobate from a righteous God. And there is a debt, consequently, that must be paid. God gave us all those things and we robbed Him of them. They were given for His glory and we took Him for our unrighteousness. I think oftentimes about uh, Onesimus in the book of Philemon. And uh, you've probably read that little book a thousand times. Onesimus was a slave. And uh, he ran away from his master. And we believe, according to the context, that he probably stole something when he ran from him. And now Paul is acting as a mediator between Onesimus and his master Philemon. And he's writing a letter upon Onesimus's behalf. And he says this, he says, Whatever he hath wronged thee, however he has wronged thee, Philemon, put that on mine account. You see, Onesimus belonged to Philemon. Now, I don't care if you like that or not, or it offends your sense of nobility. That's the reality of the matter. Onesimus was a slave. He belonged to Philemon. Philemon had the power of life and death over him. And when he ran away, he not only broke the law, he betrayed his Lord. And consequently, he was a fugitive from the house of Philemon. And in the same way, God, as our benevolent Creator, has given us all things. He's loved us. He's cared for us. Uh, he's been gracious to us. But we in rebellion have fled and ran from His Lordship, ran from His authority. But thank God that there was a day when, like the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ, or I guess I could say that the Apostle Paul did it like Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ did it like the Apostle Paul. We had one that became an advocate on our behalf. We had one that became a mediator on our behalf. I like how the book of Job talks about him, talks about him and calls him a daysman. The daysman was the mediator that went between two legal parties and tried to reconcile them one to another. We had a debt that we owed to God, but the Bible says this, that Jesus Christ, though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that we might be made rich. We had a debt that we owed, but on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ paid that debt for you and I. And He made a way that we might come unto God. You see, that debt's been paid. Once a debt's been paid, now somebody ought to testify to this. It can't be recalled. Once it's been paid, it can't be recalled. I was, we was talking with Austin and Megan uh, yesterday, and we was talking about bills and stuff like that. I told them, now you're going to laugh at me. They laughed at me, so I know you'll laugh at me. I said, we have every single water bill that we have ever paid. We do. In our house, we have every single water bill that we have ever paid, every single utility bill that we've ever paid. Now, I'm going to confess something to you. I don't really have an affinity for water bills. Anybody testify with me? I, I, I don't find it interesting. I don't sit around and for casual reading pull out old water bills and read through them. I have them for one reason and one alone. Because if the tax man or the water man ever came by my way and said, when you left service with us those years ago, you left an outstanding balance and we're coming and we've sent that to the creditors and now they're coming and they want to collect on this, I can pull out that water bill and I can say, no, sir, no, man, you can't collect on me because I've got proof that it was paid. Well, let me tell you something. When the adversary and accuser comes by your way and begins to say, you owe a debt that you could not pay. You're a sinner. You're unrighteous. You can pull out the paid bill, the Word of God, and you can say, no, sir, my friend, look at it right here. It's paid in full. And my debt is clear. I'd say that our debt has been paid, but I think he points to the fact that our charges have been cleared. You know, the sinner is uh, treated as a slave that has robbed his master and is indebted consequently. And a life must be given and the life of Christ was given. But let me say uh, that the Word of God presents you and I as trespassers, transgressors, and lawbreakers against God's holy law. We taught this morning in Sunday school, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and we came to the part where Paul, he says this, he says, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And the reason he says that is this, because the Old Testament law was not given to justify a man, it was given to condemn a man. And you know, that's what the law is for. The law is not there to tell you how good you are. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I don't pay a lot of attention to the law because I try to keep the law. Uh, I don't ever sit around and read the laws that are on the statute books of the state of Tennessee and think, boy, I'm a good law keeper. Anybody do that? I don't litter. Look at that. I never litter. I, you know, I mean, I, I try to drive within the... But let me tell you something. Now, when I've broken that law... And I see those red and blue lights come up in my rearview mirror. Somebody testify with me. All of a sudden, I care about the law. I care about the law. The law is not given for the righteous man. It's given for the unrighteous. 
It's not there to commend us. It's there to condemn us. And the Apostle Paul says this, I was trusting in the law and the law made me a sinner. And he says, I was a righteous man according to the law. In my mind, he says in Philippians chapter 3, uh, that have they whereof where to boast in the law? I more. He says of the, uh, 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 the eighth day, uh, uh, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin and the Hebrews of Hebrews. He says, as touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul says, if ever there was a good law keeper, I was a good law keeper. But he says in the book of Romans that the law pronounced death on my life. When Paul really got to looking at his life, he had to admit that he was a lawbreaker. He was a transgressor. And he says in the book of Galatians that the way that the law works is cursed is the man that continueth not therein. He says, when I looked at the law, it made me a transgressor. So I tore all that self-righteousness down. He said, but what things were gained to me in Philippians chapter 3, those I counted lost, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness of God in Him. He says, I tore all that down. I don't depend on self. And he's writing to a group of people that are trying to look to the law to provide righteousness. He said, if I build those things again, if I go back to the law and try to measure up, I'm going to be a transgressor again. I'm going to be a transgressor again. The law was given to condemn a man. The soul that sinneth, the Word of God says, it shall die. There's not a single one of us that is not a lawbreaker according to God's holy law. You say, well, I keep the big ten. That's what people think. I keep the big ten. You know, which that's debatable. There's probably not a person in this room that ain't lied. I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand because I wouldn't want to break your streak. Amen? We're all liars. We've all stolen in some way. Uh, and we, we've all, there's not a person in here whose mind hasn't harbored an unpure thought. There's not a person in here whose heart hasn't uh, coveted something in this world. Every one of us were lawbreakers. And because of that, the righteousness and holiness of God has been offended. I was talking to a fellow one time, and I've shared this story with you before, but I was talking to a Muslim fellow. And uh, we, we were, I don't know if you'd call it debating, we were just talking back and forth. And uh, we started talking about forgiveness. And I asked him this question. I said, how does Allah forgive you? How does Allah forgive you? There, listen, the only blood sacrifice in Islam is that of the infidel. Amen? There's, there's no sacrificial Savior in the, in the Muslim religion. I asked him, I said, how does Allah forgive you? And he said, well, He just forgives me. I said, what do you mean He just forgives you? He said, well, He just forgives me. I asked Him to forgive me and He forgives me. Isn't that how your God works? And I said, well, now, but wait a minute. Allah pronounced certain punishments for these sins, right? He said, well, sure. I said, you can commit those sins and just ask Allah to forgive you, and He can just forgive you for no reason. He said, well, yeah. I said, your God is a weak, lying God then. Because when He pronounces judgment upon something, He does not carry through. Our God is not a weak God. Our God is not a lying God. Our God does not have a holiness that's malleable to the will of man or to the pressures of culture. When our God says something is sin, it's sin. You say, well, what do you mean by that, preacher? Prove that to me. Point to Calvary. And I can prove to you how serious God is about sin. Rather than just forgive sin, however you want to describe that, God was willing to send His own Son to die a sacrifice for your sins and mine. God's righteousness was offended. The charges had been drawn up. You and I pronounced guilty, condemned unto death under the Old Testament law. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But you know what the Bible says in the book of Galatians? The Bible says this, uh, that the law is a cursed thing. Cursed is everyone that continueth not therein. But the Bible says this, that uh, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them uh, that were under the law. And the Bible says this, that Jesus Christ, He was made a curse for you and me, for cursed is everyone which hangeth on a tree. We, you and I, we had a death sentence written over us. The Lord pronounced us as sinners, as unrighteous, as dead, as deserving of execution. But the blessed Son of God came, lived 33 and a half years of perfect sinless, spotless righteousness. If ever there was anyone that didn't deserve to die, if ever there was anyone that never offended the law, it was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. But then He went to the cross of Calvary where we deserve to die. We deserve to die. I deserve to die. You deserve to die. And He hung upon a rugged tree and paid our debt. He suffered our punishment. And He was condemned for us. 
The Bible says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, speaking of Christ, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, those charges have been answered. As a result, I think our salvation is secure because our debt has been paid and our charges have been cleared. But I think that our salvation is secure because our accuser has been silenced. The book of Revelation calls Satan in chapter number 12 the accuser of the brethren. If we were in a courtroom, he'd be the prosecutor. He'd be the one that brought up the charges. He'd be the one that pointed to the lost sinner and said, He's a sinner, he's a sinner, he's a sinner, he's a sinner. But you know what God does when that happens? There's a lot of things that describe how God does our sin, like how He deals with it, you know. In the Old Testament, there's a hundred ways that it's described. Sometimes the Old Testament writers, they would say that God has put our sins behind His back. That's pretty good, you know. But what if God turns around? Sometimes the Old Testament writer, they would say that God had separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. But now, I don't know if you realize this, but our globe is is round. (laughs) Amen. You keep going long enough to the east or the west, you'll wind up in the west or the east. Sometimes the Bible says that God has hid our sins in a bag. Now, you say, that don't seem that impressive. You've got to remember, uh, God's measured the span of the universe in His hand. So it's big enough to put His hand in a pretty big bag, right? I understand that's imagery. I understand, but the Old Testament, right, they're trying to convey to us what God had done. Uh, sometimes they would say this, that God had placed our sins in the depths of the sea. But, you know, for one that measured out the ocean in the lines of His hands, that's really not that far away. The Bible describes it to us explicitly through the Old Testament practice of the sacrifice, uh, the sacrificial animals, and it's called atonement. It's actually unusual that word is used in Romans chapter 5. I didn't say it's wrong that it's used. It's absolutely right that it's used, but it's unusual that it's used there because that's typically an Old Testament concept. And it has the idea of covering. The Old Testament Hebrew word was the word kafar. You still with me this morning? Hang with me now. Okay, I know, I mean, we, we sped up a little, but you hang with me. It was the Old Testament word kafar. It meant to cover. It was the same word that was used whenever Moses, or whenever uh, Moses' uh, mother built the uh, ark of bulrushes. And the Bible talks about the slime that they put up. It was a covering. So sometimes the Old Testament writers, they talk about God covering our sins. Sometimes David wrote about God not imputing our sins. Sometimes the Bible would talk about all these different men. I like the way that the book of Hebrews says it. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter number 10 related to our sins. It says this uh, down in verse number 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins, and their sins, and iniquities will I remember no more. Maybe if it's behind his back, he could turn around. Maybe if it's as far as the east is from the west, he could take a small little baby step and get back to him. Maybe if it's in a bag, the almighty hand of God could reach down and pluck it up. Maybe uh, if it's in the depths of the sea, God could take one big gulp and drain him and find him again. Maybe if it was just covered, God could push aside the Old Testament sacrificial blood of the Lamb. But let me tell you something God says to us in the book of Hebrews, not just that they're covered, not just that they're separated, not just that they're thrown away, but He says they're forgotten and he'll remember them no more so you know what happens satan comes up and says you know that child of yours he's rotten he's done this he's done this he's done this he's done this and he takes our sins and he lays out the charges before god and he lays them before the face of god and says what do you think of that and the lord says well that page is blank (laughs) Satan says, I, I, I don't understand it. And he scribbles out some more and scribbles out some more. And God looks over and says, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm looking, there, there's nothing there. All I see is my son's blood on that page. There's nothing there. God says, I'll remember him no more. I'd say that you can't lose your salvation because your past is settled. I'd say number two, don't get nervous, we'll, we'll hurry up, Amen. Uh, number two, I'd say, not only because our past is settled, but I'd say we can't lose our salvation because our position is secure. 
Look at the next thing Paul says. In verse, verse number 10, he says this, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, our past has been dealt with. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved. Now notice this carefully, by His life. Now that's important because it's not talking about the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. But rather it's talking about the resurrection life of the Son of God. Now, I wish I had about, I don't know, six, seven more church services to preach this, and I don't. I know that. Because there's so much content here. Do you understand that just as when we came to Calvary, we died with Christ? you understand that? Your old man, the man that had committed all those sins, the man that had done all those wrongs, the man that was condemned to death, he died on the cross of Calvary. The man that sought to try to please God through his self, through his own righteousness, that man was put to death on Calvary when Jesus Christ died. Christ died in His place, and figuratively that old man was placed there with Him. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Just as we were with Him in His death, the Bible teaches us that in the same way as we have been buried with Him, we have also been raised with Him. The Bible describes this way. It says, raised to walk in newness of life. Paul described it to us in Romans uh, chapter uh, number 6 when he said this, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. And knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I would say this, that concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we have been given a life invincible in him. Can I put it this way? The only way you and I can lose our salvation is if somebody can manage to kick God off His throne. Our salvation is eternally connected with the resurrection life of the Son of God. The old man has already been crucified, and the Lord Jesus Christ has raised up our new man with Him. When He raised to walk in newness of life, we raised to walk in newness of life. And you know what the Bible says about Him now? The Bible says, having died unto sin once, death hath no more dominion over Him. It's interesting that the Bible describes death, and, and, and I, don't, I don't have time for all of it, but the Bible says this uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, that Jesus Christ, He conquered him that had the power over death. And He delivered them who their whole lifetime were subject unto fear and bondage unto death. You see, the lost man, he fears death. He doesn't know what hangs on the other side of that door. He doesn't know what awaits him, and if he does know, he'll fear it even more. But for the righteous, for those that have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not because they're good works, not because they've been baptized, not because they belong to a church, but because they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Death is no longer the end of the line. Death is no longer the period. Now it's the comma. It's no longer a brick wall, but now it's a doorway to everlasting bliss. And you and I, we've been raised up to walk in this newness of life. And they can't, listen now, spiritually speaking, they can't kill us unless they can kill Him. And they can't kill Him. Because the one that had the greatest chance has already been defeated. Uh, Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth. Christ stormed the castles of hell. Uh, he took and uh, robbed the crown off of the enemy's head. He broke his scepter. He strapped him to his chariot wheels. He ascended on high. He led captivity captive. He came back uh, not, uh, not as a dead man. He didn't come back as a corpse, my friend. He came back as a conqueror over death. The Bible says this, that he was not able to be holden of death. Death got a hold of him. He just let go. He said, I've had enough of that. He's a conqueror over death. I think we've been given life invincible. And so we never need to worry that all of a sudden, spiritually speaking, we're just going to be snuffed out and die. But I think that we never need to worry about our salvation if we placed our faith in Christ because we've been given a love unconquerable. Or could I describe it this way? We have a life invisible, but there's also a love inseparable. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Who shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? I mean, listen, do we need to worry that things are going to get so rough that God's just going to bail on us? Or peril? Or distress? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or sword? I mean, do we have to worry that we're just, things are going to get so bad that God's just going to say, All right, if I'd known it was going to be all this, I'm just going to leave you alone. I'm not going to fool with this. Nay, Paul said. 
Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death, because death has been conquered, (laughs) nor life, because he's the Lord of life, nor angels, because he is the captain of the Lord's host, nor principalities, because in him is all the preeminence, nor powers, because all powers delivered up unto the Son, nor things present, because he sits on his throne, nor things to come, because he's coming back in power and in glory, nor height, because he's uh, higher than the highest heights, nor depth, because his love is deep and unreachable and unsearchable, nor any other creature, because he's the Lord of creation and creator himself, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. He knew what he's getting into when he loved you and saved you. And there's nothing going to come along that's going to make him say, whoa now, this isn't what I signed up for. We've been given love inseparable. There's a look unavoidable that gives us an assurance. And I don't have time going to all up, but he says this in Romans 8. He says, for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. That word makes a lot of people nervous because they think, well, God predestinated some to heaven and some to hell. You've got to go outside the Bible to find that. Listen to me. People don't become Calvinists by reading the Word of God. They become Calvinists by reading other Calvinists. But there are some things God did predestinate. Those whom He did foreknow. Now, prescience, foreknowledge... That's not the same thing as predestination. He wouldn't be God if He didn't know all things. So those that He foreknew, those that He knew were going to accept Him, it's already been set down in granite through the high annals of eternity that they would become conformed to the image of God's dear Son. That's what Paul talks about when he says, If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. And he's talking about this is why God saved me. God saved me to make more make me more Christ-like. Paul says, I'm not waiting until one of these days when my vile body is made like unto his glorious body. He says, I know that day's coming. But he says, I'm trying right now to become more Christ-like. I'm trying to apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. I think because God already has a plan for you and I if we've been born again. I think because there's a law unchangeable, we don't have to worry about our salvation. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flowers of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. I mean, hey, it's wintertime. Look out your window. You know that's true. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Let me tell you something. I've given this illustration before. The Word of God is the foundation for my salvation. I'm saved not because I had a feeling, not because I saw a vision, not because I heard a voice. I'm saved because I placed my faith in the promises of God. And He promised me He'd save me. This faith is my foundation, you understand. This is my foundation. Now, what else is this the foundation of? By faith we understand that the world was framed by the Word of God so that things which appear were made of things which do not appear. When God created this world, how did He do it? He spoke. Let there be. You understand? Now, I'm not a a construction person. I'm not a contractor. But I do understand enough about building to understand this. The foundation is pretty important. In fact, it doesn't matter how good you do the rest of the building. If the foundation goes, she all goes. Now, your roof might cave in and you still have something left. A wall might collapse and you've still got a building. But if the foundation goes, the whole thing topples down be it a meager little hut or be it a 40-story skyscraper, when the foundation crumbles, the entire building goes down. You say, preacher, what's a good reminder that I can't lose my salvation? This is the reminder. The thing that your salvation is based on is the thing that creation is based on. Look to the sky, see that it's still blue, and know that you're saved eternally. Look to the grass, see that it's still green, know that you're saved eternally. Look to the planets as they spin in everlasting darkness at the whim of an almighty Creator, and know that He's on His throne, that He's in control, that the Word of God is still true, and my salvation is still secure and sure in Him. It's going to be just as likely for the sun to fall out of the sky as it would be for me to lose my salvation. Because it's not based upon me, it's based upon Him. Finally, and I just want to mention this, I think that we can have confidence in the security of grace because our past is settled and because our position is secure. But I think we can have a lot of confidence in this, that our priest is sufficient. 
Notice the next phrase that he uses. I like this in verse 11. It might, it might confuse you if you don't read it carefully. It says this, And not only so, you understand, not only so, we've been reconciled, our past has been settled. Our position is secure. We are saved by His life. We are, our life is, uh, that we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. We are secure in Him. But not only so that, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. A lot of people don't like the use of that word atonement there. It don't bother me. I understand it's the same word used as reconciliation in other places. You say, why do you think God had them translators translated as atonement? I'll tell you why I believe He had them translated them that way. Because when I think of the word atonement, I think of a priest. And it's not that I am looking to an Old Testament sacrifice. It's just a reminder to you and I that we have a present high priest on the throne. (laughs) They could have wrote reconciliation if God had allowed them. I understand that, but I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's a message. And God wants us to remember who it is that we joy in God through. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. It's not just the fact that my past has been settled. And it's not just the fact that my position is secure. I'm justified in Him. But I have great confidence that I can never lose my salvation because there's one seated at the right hand of God the Father. And He's able to save to the uttermost them that come unto Him because He ever liveth to make intercession for them. He didn't just save me and leave me. He saved me and now He's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for me. It's not I did have an advocate. It's I do have an advocate. It's not I did have a mediator. It's I do have a mediator. It's not I did have an intercessor. It's that right now as I stand before you on this Sunday morning in this little church, I do, I do, I do have an intercessor somewhere in the gilded ivory palaces of the throne room of God, the blessed Son of God seated at the Father's right hand has His ear bent low to my petitions, bent low to my problems, bent low to my heartaches, and He knows what I'm going through. And He takes up my petitions and He speaks to the Father on my behalf, and through Him I have access and boldness through the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give you three things I think this points to. Number one, we have access into His presence. Let me read three verses to you in Hebrews chapter 4, and I'll give you the three points from it, and we'll close. Hebrews chapter 4 says this in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Now, Paul has just spent three chapters proving we have a great high priest. So he says, Seeing then, because of that, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You say, preacher, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know that you're still saved? Because I still have access into his presence. I-, I like this. We're not only permitted into his presence, we are persuaded to come into his presence. It doesn't say let us therefore come into his presence. It says let us therefore come boldly into his presence. Several times in the New Testament, you could find it in Romans, you could find it in Ephesians twice, you can find it here in the book of Hebrews. The idea of boldness and access related to the throne room of God is conveyed to us. You understand uh, that for, uh, for uh, 2,000 years or 1,500 years, the presence of God was separated from His worshipers by a great high veil that hung in the temple. The tabernacle or temple uh, was contained in three basic areas. There was the outer court, the place where pretty much anybody could go and uh, do the business of offering a sacrifice or, or maybe purchasing something to sacrifice. Then within that, there was a smaller area that was called the holy place. And it was in this place that the average priest would minister. If you were a Levitical priest, that's where your business took place. You'd go, you'd offer the sacrifices, you'd present the blood. But then there was a third place in the very heart of the tabernacle that they called the Holy of Holies. Uh, 364 days out of the year, this place would sit empty. No one would grace its presence. No one would dare enter in without the permission of an Almighty God. But on one day out of the year, we call it the Day of Atonement. The Jews call it Yom Kippur. The Bible 
Bible teaches us this, that the great high priest would go and enter behind that veil with the shed blood so that he could make atonement for the priest. But if he entered at any other time, he risked the peril of being struck dead. Uh, the commentators tell us this, that the Old Testament priests, along the hem of their garments, they would have bells sewn in, and a rope would be tied around their waist. And when the Old Testament high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, if he had any iniquity in his heart, if there was any malice or any guile, he risked falling dead, and they would listen on the outside with bended ear to that thick and dominant curtain. And if they heard the bells quit ringing, they'd know to pull the lifeless body of a righteous man out of the presence of God. And for all those years, that that curtain, it said, no entrance, no entrance, no permission, like a big divine stop sign to those that would seek unto God. The Bible teaches us in the book of Hebrews (laughs) that that veil... is a picture of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. His 33 and a half years of spotless, sinless life. The Bible says the veil, that is to say, His flesh, meaning the righteousness of Christ. And listen to me, whenever Christ came, it wasn't just enough that He lived. If He had lived for 33 and a half years in sinless perfection and then gone on to glory and took a detour away from the cross, all that would have done is pointed once again to a perfect standard to which man could not attain. But He did not do that. Instead, at the end of 33 and a half years, He set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem and He went to the place appointed. He said, My hour is now come. What shall I pray? Lord, deliver me from this hour. For this hour came I into the world. And so he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Uh, He was beaten. He was bruised. He was spit upon. He was flogged. He was treated more cruelly than man could ever imagine. I'm talking about Hollywood producers couldn't even come close to the agony that he went through. And then up the Via Dolorosa, the road of sorrows, the commentators called it, he walked up bearing the cross on his shoulders till he gave from the weight of it. And Simon the Cyrenian had to carry it. They nailed his hands to the cross. They nailed his feet to the cross. They dropped him down into that hole. His shoulders dislocated. His lungs began to collapse under the pressure. And there for six hours he hung as a sacrifice. The Son of Man was lifted up from the earth uh, that He might increase and that we might decrease. And there as a bridge between man and God, He hung for our sins. In the midst of that time, the Bible says there came a point when the earth began to quake and the rocks began to rend open. And all of a sudden, a darkness fell over the entire earth. Not just a place. You see, heretics, they want to say that's a lunar eclipse. It's not a lunar eclipse for a lot of reasons. One, if you study the Jewish calendar, which was a lunar calendar, it would have been in the middle of the month of Bib, which would have put the moon clear on the other side of the earth. It was impossible for it to be a lunar eclipse. And Luke tells us this, that that darkness was not just regional to Jerusalem, but over the entire earth, darkness began to veil itself as the Father of lights turned His back on His blessed Son. In the midst of that darkness, Christ cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to be interpreted, My God, My God. It's the only time He ever called Him God and didn't call Him Father. There in some mysterious way which my finite puny mind cannot reconcile in some way that is lost to me until I enter into the blessedness of a full and functioning glorified mind. In some way the Trinity, in some way the harmony was disrupted. In some way the fellowship was somehow disrupted. And in that moment He didn't call Him Father. He called Him God and He said, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? It's quiet on that hillside. But there in a busy temple, you'd have seen something unusual happen. For that veil, some six inches thick, some eight to twelve foot high, all of a sudden, the priests are just going about their business. It was a busy time. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was the Passover week. They were making preparations. They didn't care about some male factor being crucified by the Romans on a hillside. They were going about their priestly business. And all of a sudden, they hear a shriek. They hear a loud noise. And they look up. And that veil began to rend from the top to the bottom as without hands, as though God Himself reached down from heaven and Split it in two. And access was made. Access was made. Now you and I, we don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go down sit in some phone booth and tell some pervert our business. Somebody say amen. We have a high priest seated at the right hand of the Father. 
we have access. I'd say there is an access to His presence. I'd say there's an awareness of our problems. Like what it says in verse 15, For we have not an high priest, not which was not touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That would be a blessing if it said that. That's not what it says. You get something a lot better. It doesn't say which has not been touched with it, but it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. See, I, I don't have to worry I'm going to lose my salvation because I've been given access through the blood of Christ. But I don't have to worry that I'm going to lose my salvation because God doesn't understand, because God can't see my weakness, because God doesn't know my frame that it's but does, because I have a high priest uh, that was attempted in all points like as I was, yet without sin. And he's seated at the right hand of the, hand of the Father. And because he suffered, he's made a fit high priest. He's able to succor them that are tempted because he was tempted. And there at the right hand of the Father. It's not just that He remembers, but even at this moment, when my heart beat with, beats with pain, His heart beats with pain. When my heart beats with discouragement, it twinges the almighty heart of the Son of God. He's touched with the feelings of my infirmities, and He knows exactly what I'm going through. Now, you may not understand, but He understands. I may not understand, but He understands. I don't have to worry about being cast from His presence because I'm weak because I complain, because I don't understand, because though I may never understand, He always understands. I'd say because we have an access into His presence, I'd say because there is an awareness of our problems. i got another one. Let me see what it is. It's too good to stop now. Amen. <laughs> I'm having a good time. I hope you are too. I'd say not only because we have access to His presence and awareness of our problems, but we have an advocate for our petitions. We don't ever have to worry about working on his patience. That's what he's there for. That's what he's there for. You understand. I don't even know how to explain this right. Lord, help me. When he became man, he never ceased to be man. He was 100% God and 100% man. Somebody say amen to that. We know that, right? He didn't cease to be God when He became man, nor uh, did He cease to become man or to be, did He become less man when He ascended to the, to the throne of heaven. Can I point a verse to you that might help you with that? For there is uh, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Not there was one mediator. There is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. When he resurrected from the dead, he was given a resurrection body. His body was transfigured and glorified. But it was not an ethereal or immaterial thing. It was physical enough he could sit down on the beach and he could, he could eat fish with his disciples. It was physical enough that he could say, Thomas, reach your, reach your fingers into the nail prints. Thrust your hand into the spear uh, where the spear was in my side. It was still physical enough. Now, that's mysterious. I know that, but it's biblical. And you know what it reminds me of? The reason he's seated at the right hand of the Father. His work's done. His work's done. But he started a new work when he ascended to the throne of God. The work of redemption is done. But now through him, we've received the atonement. That is administered through our present priestly relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I don't think they're making a mistake when they pick that word atonement. They wanted to remind us that this relationship is vested in the risen Savior and in His present priestly ministry. Right now, we have a high priest through which this is administered in my life, in your life. In other words, when you have a need, there's one that hears it. When you have a concern, there's one that notices. When you have... Uh, listen, he, he bottles our tears up in a bottle. He keeps every heartache that we ever had. He's touched with these feelings. And when we need to pray, we have one that'll pray. We have one that'll pray. I don't have to worry about sinning and losing my salvation. You know why? Because if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And He hears our petitions.